0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Sarah McMullen, who is a journalist and presenter with STV News, and she presents the morning and lunchtime bulletins every day. Sarah graduated from Strathclyde University with an English literature degree and went on to live and teach English as a foreign language in Vietnam. While living there, she applied for the MA Multimedia Journalism course at Glasgow Caledonian University, with the interview starting on the back of a motorbike because she got stuck in traffic. Sarah loves travelling, live music, cooking and eating, and of course, reading. Sarah, welcome to the Read All About It podcast.
1: Hello, Paul. Thank you very much for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, we'll obviously be chatting about uh, the importance of books in your yes. life and in your career, but obviously, I was intrigued. I'm guessing that the people at Glasgow Caledonian University realised how keen you were to get on that course if you're doing the interview in the back of a motorbike.
1: Well, I don't know if they ever actually knew that that's where I was because I was coming home from school I'd been teaching all day and the traffic in Hanoi was always just so unpredictable so busy you never knew what you were going to run into and I'm thinking to myself I've got this call in like 15 minutes and I'm still about half an hour away from home and it's not quiet you know it's not a a quiet city so I just I just had to begin the interview and I was like I'm really sorry if you can hear a lot of noise going on in the background behind me I'm just I'm still on my way home from work and towards the end of the journey, it was only about five minutes home uh, away from home, it started to absolutely team it down the rain. So, you know, it was uh, not ideal, not ideal. But we got there in the end, we managed to get in. So
0: Was there a point that you were thinking that somebody up there doesn't like me?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is not for me. It's a no from the start. Don't even bother. Yeah, that was absolutely what was going through my head. And it was also just like oh, typical me. So there's always something that has to go wrong. But we made the best of it.
0: Because what, what struck me, and I was quite interested, that books and literature, obviously, is something that you, you must be really passionate about. You know, you did the English Literature degree. You were then also teaching English as a foreign language in Vietnam. At what point did you then want to go into journalism and multimedia journalism that's brought you to, you know, to be on STV?
1: Well, you know, it was kind of actually the other way around and that I've always wanted to do journalism. And I applied to do journalism at Strathclyde, the journalism and creative writing course, and there's only 30 spaces. And my grades weren't good enough to get into the course. So I went and did English literature, which was probably for the best because when I started junior, I was only 17 and not all that interested in being academic, to be perfectly honest. You know, I just liked talking about Glasgow with my big books and going to a coffee shop and then meeting my pals at the pub afterwards, you know. But I always wanted to be. A journalist and i think the way those two things cross over is that at the heart of both of them are stories and, and people's stories so you know that's what's always appealed to me because i
0: always wonder obviously that idea that if you're a wee bit older you've got a wee bit of life experience that will obviously help you in terms of the job that you're doing but also i sometimes think Because journalism, there's a certain talent that you don't necessarily need, you know, it can be a different degree if it's a degree that you, you know, you love studying English, so you want to do that. But that doesn't stop you from then going on to do journalism, because it's all part of that, as you say, that grounding in either telling stories, but knowing how stories are constructed.
1: Yeah, I think for me, definitely taking those few years out between doing my first degree and my second degree and going to live in a different country, the other side of the world and things that gives you all that life experience it definitely made me better equipped to do this as my job because you you meet people from all different walks of life you know how to handle yourself a bit more you know how to be a bit more forthcoming and put yourself forward for things and that um yeah so I think it definitely helped me out I'm glad I came to it later on in my life and that I didn't immediately go into that straight from six year at school I actually, have a lot of admiration for young people that don't feel pressured to go immediately into to university and do want to go and do other things because you don't need to know what you want to do at that age.
0: I, I sometimes feel actually, it's, most people don't really know what they want to do. I mean, you, you meet people in their 20s, 30s, 40s that probably still don't know what they want to do. So it's not surprising when you're leaving school that you're, because it's quite, when you try and remember back to being that age, it can be quite intimidating thinking, God, I've got to choose something for the rest of my life, which you actually don't.
1: Yeah, it is. It's it's a a daunting prospect. And for me, I was always quite good at school. I got quite good marks and stuff. And so there was no other thought process in my head that I was going to do anything other than go to university. But at that time, I really was not, I wasn't trying to be particularly good at it, if I'm I'm honest. Like a lot of other people, it wasn't until I got to my fourth year during my English literature degree that I really started to take it seriously and put in the work.
0: As long as you get there in the end, I suppose that's the the main thing. It's
1: turned out all day, we've got (laughs) there in the end, it's fine, it's fine.
0: I mean, one of the things, just before we started recording, we're just chatting, obviously I'd mentioned that you're working on STV News, so a lot of people will be familiar seeing you on TV. The other side is, did that take a wee bit of getting used to the fact that you're, you're aware, even though you're in the studio and you're just maybe talking to the camera, you're aware that there's hundreds of thousands of people who are watching you? and you know we mentioned it. sometimes you maybe have a bad day at work then also the fact is even when you're out people will, will either know who you are they'll think i know i know her from somewhere
1: i mean I definitely i couldn't do it every day if you did think that hundreds of thousands of people see what you do when you're being taught broadcast journalism they teach you to speak as if you're talking to one person and that's something i still try and do so yeah when you're in the studio you just think you're telling this to one person as opposed to many many people and yeah like I said to you before that the downside is that when you do have a bad day at your work everybody else sees it and you know can remind you of it later on. So yeah it takes a lot of getting used to but it's something I just put out to the back of my head now.
0: Do you have it is it a specific person you're talking to? You just thinking there's just one person sitting <laughs> in the house watching you?
1: My imaginary friend Paul um <laughs> no no nobody nobody in particular just the, the way, the best way to put a, a story across is to make it sound like you're you are telling somebody you know, because in that way you'll use language even that's more accessible and familiar to people, and not sound like this clunky news language. So that's what we try and do.
0: Because I also think as well, and, and I think may I've done a wee bit of nothing like in kind of the scale that you've done it, but just in terms of my work, we've done things for camera. I don't think people realise just how difficult it is to make it look like as if you're relaxed in front of camera, because I think even that's part of the reason I did this as an audio podcast, because I think people are more relaxed if you're just recording a voice. As soon as you put a camera on anybody, suddenly they can become quite intimidated. So I think sometimes people, when they're sitting in their house, doing their own kind of version of Google box, shouting at people in the telly, you think that's not easy.
1: No, you find that all the time when you're out even doing interviews and you're, you're speaking to people quite the thing, just having a really casual conversation. And then you turn the camera on and you're like, right, just, just tell me what, what you just told me. And, and, you know, we kind of seize up and you get all awkward and they don't want to say it just the same. You are kind of as well just taught not to try and be anyone else, not to try and sound like you're a newsreader, to try and come across as, as yourself, because that's when you'll be most trusted, I suppose. But that isn't, it's quite hard to be yourself in front of a camera.
0: And then, and then throw into the mix the fact that you're doing it live.
1: Yeah, live TV's fun and games.
0: Yeah, I can imagine
1: (laughs) lots of fun and games, but it's a brilliant learning curve, and that's how you you should do news. It's how you get the most up to date information to people. So,
0: well, uh, in terms of today's podcast, obviously, I'm going to take you on your literary journey of your life, Uh, and I'm sure at some point we'll talk about some of the things that you maybe studied at university. But you know, for the starting question, I always like to take people back to their childhood and ask you your your favourite book from childhood. And you've given me like one book and also like an author as well. So the the book that you chose, first of all, was The Twits by Roald Dahl.
1: Yes, so The Twits is always almost very my, my front runner. I just remember The Twits when I was younger, you know, Roald Dahl and Quentin Blake's illustrations, they go side by side with each other, and I just remember these sort of scraggy line drawings, The Twits with their big, massive beards, and the story's just, it's funny, and it's a bit gross, and, you know, they're always pulling pranks on people, making jokes, and typical of all Roald Dahl novels, it's just full of imagery. You know, there's there's lots of imagination. One of the, I suppose, with the twits, there these two characters that they just they love being miserable. And as an adult, you kind of know somebody that enjoys being miserable, <laughs> don't you? Like yeah. they're not they're kind of not happy unless unless they're unhappy and they've got something to moan about. So for me, yeah, that's the twits. That's the twits brought to life. And it also has one of my favourite Roald Dahl quotes that is, if you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face like sunbeams and you will always look lovely. And I just think that's a lovely thing to to tell a child, to, to think good things and to have a positive outlook.
0: So what age were you when you first read that?
1: Oh, I don't know how old I would have been. I would probably have been about eight or nine. I suppose that's when I first properly started reading because I've been quite lucky in that I've come from a house where my mum's always read to me when I was younger she'd always read my books before you went to bed at nighttime and things and then when we started going on holidays it was a big deal to go to Waterston's or WH Smith and get your holiday book my mum would take me to Waterston's and she'd say right read the first four or five pages of that book and if you want to find out what happens afterwards, then we'll get you the book. And that's when you can take on holiday. So that that for me was probably started about eight or nine.
0: It's quite interesting when people answer this question. And it is those memories of when you start reading, but quite often it is when your parents have read to you or like a teacher at school or because it's that it's a shared, although it becomes a solitary thing that you do, you and the book, at first it's a shared experience and it, it takes you back to those nice memories, as you say, of sitting there and your mum's reading your books before you go to bed.
1: Yeah, and for me, it was it was that my mum reading to me in the house, and then you know going on on holiday and getting my, my nose stuck in a book. So the author that I was obsessed with when I was younger is Jacqueline Wilson, and I just have such distinct memories of being by a pool, my sister this wee bronzed beach bum jumping in and out, and you know filling the holiday braids, and me sitting under a parasol with prickly heat and a t-shirt on reading Jacqueline Wilson like with a calypso, you know, so. <laughs> I was absolutely obsessed with her and that's what I did. Um, I just sat and read all day. I, I loved it.
0: Because, I mean, she is a phenomenal writer just in terms of not only just the fact that her output, I think she's written over 100 books, but the popularity that's that spanning different generations.
1: Yeah, because even when you asked me to pick a childhood book, I was like, well, I'm going to need to choose a Jackie Wilson book, but I couldn't choose one because I even before I my mum and I was like, mum, what would you say was my favourite book when I was younger? And she was like, "Well, you loved um, the dustbin baby, Tracy Beaker, Girls Out Late, Girls in Love." She was just listing all of her books, and yeah, she's. I think Jacqueline Wilson is to eight-year-old girls what Marion Keyes is to women in their forties. You know, and I mean that in the in the the best possible way. And that they write in a way that compels their their audience and tells them stories that they know they want to to hear and to know more of.
0: It always strikes me that. One of the most difficult things to write must be kids' books because you have to get it right because they're probably children are the most critical, probably the most receptive, but the most critical audience. And if, if they like something, they love it. But if they don't like it, they'll tell you. So for her to be that successful, she obviously, whatever she's doing is just phenomenal.
1: Yeah, the thing about Jacqueline Wilson books is that none of them are particularly happy. You know, they're, they're not like a, a Roald Dahl book where you're, you're taking on this big journey of imagination and there's rarely a happy ending you know what what she does is she tackles quite difficult subjects you know one of her like the, the dustbin baby that's about a girl that's literally abandoned in a dustbin tracy beaker she grows up in foster care and, and they're, they're quite difficult subjects for children to grapple with with quite gritty topics but she puts the characters alongside things that all children go through and so can relate to you know like the struggles to, to fit in at school or trying to impress a particular group of friends. And then that way you're drawn into the story. But at the same time, you're learning of experiences that are maybe really quite different to your own upbringing. So, yeah, she's really good.
0: Did she not quite recently, within the last two or three years, right? Another book where, was it not Tracy Beaker was, was it an adult and it was Tracy Beaker's daughter was the character? Yes.
1: Yeah, that I think that's been made into a series.
0: Did you read Just that? Now?
1: No, I've not read it. If I read it, Paul, well, if I bought it, it would add to my ever-growing <laughs> pile of books that I've not read, but maybe I'll put it on my list.
0: I wondered how people, because I was curious how people who would have loved it as, as a child, how they'd approach it as an adult. I know,
1: I know. I I, want, I do wonder how it's written. And I suppose it's one of those things as well that you're actually quite scared to go back and read it with adult eyes in case... It ruins any of it for you. And you're like, what was I thinking? Why did my mum let me buy these books? You, you know? So, well, maybe just leave it untouched just in case it ruins any of the memories.
0: The, the other thing when when uh, you'd mentioned the Twits, and I hadn't realised this before until I was just doing a wee bit of research on it. And I think the very first thing I read was that partly Roald Dow had an acute hatred of beards, which is such a random yes. thing, which is yeah, that's- the motivation.
1: That's why I wrote it and that's why during the book they're always getting stuff stuck in their beards because they thought they were you basically thought they were mine, they thought they were disgusting. So there's a bit I really remember them, um, the twits getting all these cornflakes and things stuck, stuck down their, their beards, and Mrs. Twit makes Mr. Twit a meal of worms and all that's getting stuck in their beards. But good thing Rolldale's not about to see all the, the hipsters you wouldn't approve.
0: <laughs> no, I kinda went off a movie bit when I read that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can see why.
0: The, the only other thing I was going to ask as well is, you know, you mentioned about as a child taking books on holiday and that was part of the whole experience of going on holiday and I found, I generally read the physical books, but I always take a Kindle on holiday and that was, to me, that's was a that been the brilliant invention of Kindles is the fact that you'd suddenly take a library with you on holiday and it's not taking up your luggage allowance. Do you do that when you go on holiday or do you still prefer taking actual books?
1: No, I still take actual books, but my mum, she reads a Kindle and I was round in her garden the other day for the first time in ages and she was working away inside and I was like oh I wish i brought my book because it was a, a nice day and she went and got me her her kindle she was like oh well, just read just read that because she'd already read the book and I was like oh, this is great and I, I actually really quite liked it because it told you how much progress you'd made you know or how or how long it was until you finished that chapter instead of skipping forward the pages to see how long you you had to go so I'll maybe get one for Christmas if I ask nicely
0: Listen, there's nothing that beats the actual the bo- book. No,
1: yet. I love I love a book, and I love I love looking at them all sitting in my living room, nice hardbacks next to each other. And but I'm terrible if I like a book, I give it away. So most of the books that I've told you, I don't have any anymore because because when I really enjoy them, I just give them on to somebody else. And I'm like, read that. Right. So I need to buy them all again.
0: Well, that sounds like that's just an excuse for you to go out and buy them all again. I know,
1: spend more money.
0: Well, if I can take you on to. The question is always a favourite book from teenage formative years. And when you were sending me your, your list and you said you kind of cheated slightly, but I love the reason why you've cheated. And I'm glad you want to talk about this book and the book that you've chosen is The Young Team by Graham Armstrong.
1: Yes. So this was actually the the first book I read at the beginning of the first lockdown last March. And it was just brilliant. I, I think I finished it in a couple of days. And it's unlike anything I've ever read before. So, yeah, you'd say to choose a, a book from your, your formative years. And, and like I've, I've sort of mentioned before, I was a good pupil at high school, but the, I don't think I was reading anything in particular that I feel had an, an impact on me. I was reading books I was told to read at school. I think this book is something that should definitely um, has a place in in high schools and, and should appeal to that younger audience.
0: You said as well it was something that you wish you had read when you were a teenager. Because I noticed the other day, it's apparently it's set to be adapted for TV as well. So it's been a phenomenal success that book and for Graham Armstrong. One of the things that the reason why I I, I wanted to talk about it is that people who have listened to the podcast for a while, I've spoke about my my son who is now twenty seven and books are not for him. He, he just h- hasn't been interested in books. And so at Christmas time, I had given you know the, the Icelandic tradition of giving everybody. I stumbled upon it on the internet, you give everybody a book on Christmas Eve, and they're supposed to. Oh, be that's the book and eat some chocolate. So I'd given the kids and day a book. And I thought, I'm going to buy him a book, even though I know he, he doesn't read. And I chose that book because I'd seen Graham Armstrong interviewed and I thought he came across really well. So I gave Andrew the book at Christmas Eve. Then on Christmas morning, he came down and he said to us, I had the weirdest Christmas Eve ever. And we thought, oh, what happened? He said, I sat up reading that book. And he read the book and absolutely loved it. And I thought, I haven't read it yet. It doesn't really matter to me. I love that book. And it wasn't the case he didn't like books. He just had to find the right book.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And Graham speaks so well on that, is that this book does appeal to people that are not considered your traditional readers. And that's because the voice in the book, people recognise themselves in it you know, it's written in scottish dialect and it takes your, your eyes a few minutes to adjust to, to the pages but the, the way it's written is so important to as a, the protagonist story he couldn't have written it and have the same impact unless it was written in scots and just you know it has it has that um, scottish humor and if you're saying your son's 27 he'll he'll recognize all the the cultural references in it you know your are bergus and sitting in msn and you know, it's it's from his time and our time at, at high school. But I think that's why it does appeal to people, because you, you see yourself in it or experiences similar to yours in it. But it goes so much further than that. It's, um, goes completely beyond that. And speaking about, you know, masculinity in Scotland and touches on sectarianism and struggles with male mental health and addiction, and it all comes from a voice that's familiar.
0: What I thought was interesting from listening to Graham is, Trainspotting was obviously really influential to him just in terms of a book that he read. I think that was the book that changed his life in terms of he read a book in a language that he recognised and that made him motivate them to want to go on and study English and go to university. And I wonder if that will have the same impact on other, you know, as you mentioned to younger people, it's talking about things that they identify with more than that, but in a language that they understand. It's not like somebody like me, middle-aged, writing in proper English on the same subject matter. It's somebody who's lived that and it's telling them telling them their
1: story, I suppose. Yeah, I think, you know, Graham is testament to, to the fact that if you want more diverse voices in the literary world, then you need to, you know, you need to support kids from all backgrounds in the classroom from early on. And that's how that's how you get it, those voices to be heard. But yeah, the book's just, it's absolutely brilliant. I, I've rushed through it and, in a few days and it's and it's quite it's quite different to some other because it's called the young team it's about gangs and territorial gangs but it doesn't glamorize gang violence or at all the way it's different to, to other books is that yeah you have the action there's the fight but there's always the build-up to the event you, you feel that the adrenaline and, and the buzz leading up to it but afterwards there's consequence you know at one point as he's sent he's got broken teeth and lumps all over his body and he's feels he feels lonely and And like, why is this my life? He's bringing trouble to his mum's front door. And there's always the consequence of of the action. Same with the drug use. And so it provides context. And it's not something that glamorises violence at all.
0: And is that a book that you've subsequently given away?
1: Actually, it's the only one that's next to me right now. (laughs) It's the only one that's next to me right now. Um, But that's only because I've not been able to see people because lockdown. This one's actually got a, a note in it from Graham. He sent it to me at the start of last lockdown because he'd done some work with STV. And I messaged him saying, Oh, the book sounds great. And so he sent it to me. But I'll maybe uh, hang on to it in case it's worth a bit of money one day.
0: I'm always in a quandary about giving books away. Sometimes I'm quite happy to do it, depending on the book. But there's some books I have a real kind of emotional attachment to. It and and it depends who you give the book to. Sometimes you'll give a book to someone and they'll give you it back. And then other times it will just disappear. And I found myself sometimes, the example I always give is, I read a book about the song, The Witcher Lineman. And it was all about, you know, the song, the songwriter. And it was just, a, it absolutely blew me away. It's a beautiful book. And I've told other people who love the song, So, I'll need to get that book off you to read. And I'm thinking, nah, I can't. I'm not giving you that. Can't trust you. No, I don't. No, I'm saying that internally. I don't say that to (laughs) them.
1: (laughs) Say what you mean, Paul. Say what you mean. (laughs) Uh, No, I'll be honest and say all the books I've uh, given away, I've absolutely not seen a single one back. So, I need some new mates. I'm in the market for some new friends. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Because the other thing, and again, before we started recording, we were talking about this, you know, if you love books, you love reading books, but you also love buying books and I was saying I think sometimes that's there's two different pleasures to that because that, I've started on my, my phone just ahead we're recording this just ahead of the bookshops opening up again in Scotland and I've just been making a list of all the books that I, I want to buy I'm not going to buy them all because it would just be ridiculous but I'm just looking forward to going back into a bookshop and, and buying some books and some of them will lie in my shelf for like probably two three four years before I get around to reading them
1: I know that is such a it's such a nice thing to do though I think go into instead of getting your books off Amazon or whatever which is what I've been doing this past year although I've been trying to um, use some local like independent bookshops there's one in, in Glasgow called Outwith you can order your books from there and they post them out to you yeah but going into a bookshop and having you know a wee around all the different ones and seeing one that catches your eye and oh then it's three for two and then you've come home with six books but yeah I can't wait to go to go in a bookshop again.
0: And, and also I, because at the moment I'm redecorating my office and just to, to get bookshelves up and basically where my desk is it's just going to face a wall that's just going to be all books and I think I'll just come in sometimes and just sit and look at them. I think this is this is wonderful.
1: Yeah, when I was a, a kid one of my favourite films was Beauty and the Beast and I was always jealous of Belle's library that she gets at the Beast's castle that's absolutely massive and she's swinging from a ladder going around picking out different books. Maybe I'll get one of them one day.
0: I always think that thing of and it's it's hard to quantify and I've seen it with again, I've spoken about this about my kids of they, they grew up in a house of books and not a house made of books, but there's books in the house and you know, we read to them and there was always books there and they've got different interest in books. I think I think it's something that you've either you know, some people watch more T V, some people do more sport or whatever. But I think if you've got that passion for books, you get that in childhood and it never there's peaks and troughs of your reading, but you never lose that love of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree, but at the same time, people read for all different sorts of reasons. I like to read a book and be kind of moved by it. I like to feel something when I, when I read a book. And, you know, my boyfriend, he likes to read because, and escape, like go to another world or whatever. Whereas he's like, why are you crying at that book again? And I'm like, well, I, I just like something that, you know, that makes you, you feel a bit. And so, yeah, people, they either have that love for it, but what that love is, is different for so many people
0: which again goes i think goes to the heart of uh, what i've enjoyed about doing this podcast cuz every single person apart from choosing different books as you see has different reasons for having chosen them different reasons for for loving them etc and that's it's endlessly fascinating <laughs> Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Sarah McMillan. Sarah, we're on to question three, a book you'd recommend to anyone. And I'm guessing from correspondence we had that you found this one quite difficult, because although you chose a book called Homegoing by Yaa Gyasi, there was other books that were jostling for position there.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I am undecisive or if I'm just greedy. I don't know which one it is, but it was it was definitely a struggle to, to pick the book. And I think I picked Homegoing, and it's a book I read a few years ago now, I couldn't tell you the absolute ins and outs of it, but I had that feeling when I was reading it that you didn't want each chapter to end, and it is a book I've told lots of people to read, and it's just so cleverly done. It, it's a book that begins in Ghana with two half-sisters who are you know, separated by circumstance. One grows up and lives in Ghana, and the, the other is taken into the slave trade and and, and goes to the U.S., And it follows their lineage over, I think it's about eight generations or something, you know, and over the history of 300 years. And it's just so, so interesting. So each chapter is a different character. So each chapter is almost like its own self-contained story, a different part of history. And when I was reading those chapters, you you got so invested in the characters in such a short space of time that when it ended, I was like, I want to know what happens to them. No, like where? Do, what happens to them? Where do they go? And then you start a new a new character who's a bit later on. And yeah, it was just brilliant.
0: We can touch on the other books that you did mention, but is that something is it something you do a lot is recommend books, or is that cause some people? That's quite difficult because how do you? It's a book that you love. And again, I've spoken about this a lot, that if I'm recommending the book to you and I really love it, I'm, I'm going to be slightly judgmental depending on what your reaction to it is.
1: Like I said to you earlier on, I like listening to people who have loved and enjoyed something and, and listening to them tell you about it. So, yeah, I probably do tell my friends and, and recommend things to them. Um, but if somebody's telling me all about something and I know it's not going to be my cup of tea, I'm not going to rain on the parade. I don't like to please other people's taste, you know. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I I I would recommend it to, I would recommend books to all my friends. But there there's books that have been recommended to me that have been, you know, so got a lot of praise and critical acclaim and I've gone to read them two or three times and I just can't, I can't get into it. But sometimes I think reading a book is is like anything else, you know, the circumstances around it can make it better. If your head's too busy or you have a lot going on or, you know. It can be a struggle for me sometimes to get into a book. So one that I've tried a few times that my friends love is Girl, Woman, Other. And it's kind of, again, written in a bit of a strange structure and there's no full stops and things that I've made myself like read away my way in about 30, 40 pages. I'm, like, I'm not taking any of this in at all. But then it's maybe just the wrong time. And if I go to a different time when you're maybe on holiday and you have, you're a lot more relaxed, it is something you might enjoy. So sometimes when you read a book, it does depend on the time that you read it and how and how you react to it.
0: Because I'm, I'm always, even if I, I start a book and I don't finish it, I usually give it two or three goes and I'll go back to it for those those very reasons that sometimes maybe it's just not, you're not in the right mood for that kind of book. If I mention the other books that you, you would maybe want to recommend, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. I've not read the book yet, but everybody I spoke to loves it. But for me, she's an inspiration because she was 70 when that book was published and I'm thinking there's still hope for me yet
1: exactly like what that is the best message there's there's time for you to go and live out that dream I think everybody they say everyone's got a book in them but that to write that at that age and it to be that compelling is such an achievement it's, it's unlike any other book I've ever read just in terms of where it was set and it was so enjoyable and sometimes people don't always reward books that are enjoyable because they're sometimes not seen as accomplished as something that's difficult to read. But it's just a brilliant story.
0: You said everybody's maybe got a book in them. And then right at the very start, you're talking about reading, studying English, journalism. It's all about telling stories. So that, that would be that would be my, my question is what about the book that it's obviously you've got in you?
1: I would love to write a book. Even as a child, I was always writing short stories and things. And during lockdown, I actually started writing again. But I think there is a difference to writing something and telling a story and telling other people's stories. When it's your own writing and you're putting that out there, it's quite a vulnerable thing. And, you know, when for me, when you're telling other people's stories, that's my job. So I suppose, yes, I would love to write a book, but I don't know if I am ready to be that vulnerable or that disciplined. Because any the amount of times I've sat down at a desk and go, how do you write a book? And all of these authors have given interviews and they're like, just sit down and write. And you just need to go back to every single day. And I don't know if I do have the discipline to do that at the minute.
0: Do you know, I was speaking to uh, a guy called Gordon Brown, not the politician, but the writer. He also I was going to say on, I've heard of him. <laughs> he writes under the name Morgan Cry as well. So he kind of writes crime thriller books. So he's going to be on the podcast and his writing routine as he gets up about five, half five every morning and his target, he tries to set himself a target of writing 2000 words every day. And you think, well, I mean, that's a, a lot to write. You know, you touched on the fact that it's all very personal. But I think that's phenomenal because that's how you you obviously, that's how he's doing it. But I suppose it's easier
1: said than done. Yeah, and I think my relationship with writing has changed, as, it, as I have learned. When I went to um, uni and did English literature, the way you write, there's so many extra words, unnecessary words. And then when you go and do broadcast journalism, you have about 30 seconds to say what you need to say. So you, everything is completely stripped back to what are the most important words. And for TV, what words are we going to get the most from these pictures that we are showing? So I don't know if I was to sit down and write now, what would that look like?
0: Any advice I've ever see about obviously, if you want to be a writer, you write, but you have to read. So the very fact, because even if you're not planning to write anytime soon, everything you're reading, you're taking that in, you're soaking it up, and that's kind of I think that's that's part of the experience. I also think, and this just came to me just before we started recording, that. There's a place on STV for a book show which you should launch and host because Damien Barr, who has done a couple of really brilliant book shows on the BBC, and I just think it's crying out for, because people are reading, more people are reading during the past year of lockdown. So basically what I want to see in STV is Sarah McMullen's book club.
1: Paul, well, are you pitching yourself here as a co-host? I was well, not expecting to come on here <laughs> and get a
0: pitch. Well, listen, I, yeah. I I have a I have a face for audio podcasts, but I'd be I'd be a very very enthusiastic uh, viewer.
1: No, I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct. Oh, I've seen um, I've not seen Damon Barr's show, but I've seen clips of it on Twitter and things, and it is so much more people are reading, and I think that is because of the way that we consume books now. That not everybody is like you and me and wants to buy a hardback book and plug it around and sit and read it. Like we touched on earlier, lots of people have a Kindle. Lots of people listen to audio books, which I've actually never done yet. Oh, no, neither have I. Um, but loads of people listen to audio books. And so the books are reaching so much more people than than they were before.
0: And I also think these things, it takes away the mystique of it, that I think sometimes people think there's some, you know, obviously there's, there's talent, there's hard work, but actually when you actually speak to people, I, you know, Graham Armstrong was a perfect example of it. It was after listening to him on that programme that I thought, that's the book I'm going to buy for my son because... It's putting our face to the the name, but then hearing them talk and realising they're real people and how this came about. So definitely, yeah, I think, I think you should be... I'm going to start a, a, a social media campaign.
1: I'll take it in on Monday. I'll let you know what they say.
0: <laughs> the other thing, just quickly, I was going to the other two books you, you mentioned. One is called Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which is a brilliant title by Max Porter. That was also a book that was uh, chosen in this category by Tara Fitzpatrick, who's a previous guest who I know you know.
1: Yes. So I'd listened to Tara's episode and her and I did the master's course at Cali together. And, and so when she'd picked it, i was right, like, well, I'm not going to pick it. She'll think I copied her. <laughs> but um, it is, it's, it's a great book and partly because it's really short and also partly because it's not like anything I've ever read before. It's really lyrical in lots of places. And I think, like I said to you before, I like to read a book that makes me feel something that kind of can stir a bit of emotion. And when books are lyrical like that, when you do respond and feel that way, you don't always know why. And I suppose I would compare it to when you listen to a piece of, or you listen to a bit of classical music and you know you feel something, but you don't necessarily know what that is. That's how I felt when I read that book.
0: Because I'm intrigued to read it because obviously you're I don't think even think Tara was the first person to mention it. Obviously you've mentioned it as well. And you know that way, once you hear lots of different people, you think, right, I need to go and investigate this because there's obviously something in it.
1: You should buy that when the bookshop's open next week. That can I, be on your
0: list. I'll add that to my my You can
1: my, add it to your list. Paul.
0: Ever ever expanding list. And the <laughs> other book that you, you mentioned as well was a book by Dolly Alterton, which is called Everything I Know About Love. And is that is that a memoir?
1: Yes. Dolly Alderton wrote a memoir at twenty-eight and she, she slags herself off for it all the time, and quite rightly so. But I, I read that book when I was about 25, I think, in my 20s. And that can just be such a difficult time to navigate. You don't really know your place yet. And the way it was written, there was lots of just reassurance and relatability through it. And I did really did want to to choose that as opposed to something that had got lots of literary praise because often sometimes I think when women write about feelings or emotions or you know personal experiences it can be lumped into a category that's seen as a bit as as like fluff when it's written particularly for women whereas when men write about feelings they're writing about human condition and a universal experience and they're seen as quite different things but the book's just brilliant it's funny and it made me cry. And um, yeah, you just you seen yourself in stupid things that she was doing, and it did provide that reassurance that yeah, things are going to be all right. So maybe I should write a, a memoir at 28 and make a, a lot of money. What do you think? <laughs> oh,
0: no, listen, go just go for it after you've done the show, but. <laughs>
1: I'll start it after we got off this call.
0: <laughs> do you, I mean, you, you mentioned this a couple of times in the podcast. Do you like books that make you cry or do you find that you cry a lot at books or do you get quite emotional because you you can, uh, you make this investment in them as you're, you're reading them?
1: I mean, I th- my friends are going to listen to this podcast and laugh because I think I just cry a lot in general. I mean, the other day my boyfriend found me on Netflix just typing in sad films, you know, but... <laughs> But I, I don't know what that says about me. I don't know if it means I'm. I do not think it means I'm particularly morbid. But you know, sometimes you need a bit of a release, and books and films and music they they are that for me. And although they're not always your experiences, to to get lost in a story and to be invested in it. Yeah, I think it's it's a great thing, and I'm not embarrassed to say that I love to cry at a book.
0: Cause I I haven't done it very often because the first time I, I ever remember was when I read The Grapes of Wrath, John Steinbeck. The ending just absolutely astounded me. And it was the most moving thing I'd ever read. And it did take me by surprise because it wasn't an emotion that I would i was kind of used to in terms of books. And it, it happens rarely, but when it does, you kind of think, you know, that it really has an impact. But I also think as well, and I've spoken to a couple of friends about this, I think particularly for men as you get older and you kind of get into middle age, even without realizing you get a bit more emotional. I don't know if it's that you're just kind of like, you're at the wrong end of your your, your life, so you, things become a bit more, or maybe you're just more comfortable in thinking, right, well, if a book moves you like that, then that's fine, you, you admit that.
1: For me, I would say, yeah, I like to read stories that have a bit of grit about them. Um, I wouldn't always necessarily cry at a book, but I think for an author, that's a, a massive accomplishment because to write with feeling, like to genuinely move somebody is difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. So yeah, more people yeah. should cry at books.
0: The one this year that, that I think I read Hamnet, Maggie O'Farrell. You haven't read it?
1: No, it's on my list.
0: Right, well, you'll, you'll probably no read spoilers. it now. Cause, no, because I'm just going to say there's, there's a section in it, which is one of the saddest, most beautiful things that I've ever read. So then if you're just wanting to cry out a book, then just just go for it. <laughs>
1: Thank you for the recommendation, Paul.
0: <laughs> now, if we can go from uh, books that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And the book that you've chosen is of the Durbervilles by Thomas Hardy.
1: Yes. So, I mean, I'm going to be completely honest here and say I've absolutely no idea what that book's about. And I could have Googled it before this podcast and it gave you some reason as to why it just wasn't for me. But really, I don't like the book and I could never read it again in quotation marks because that is what I studied for my advanced higher English class. And I spent weeks basically trying to write this essay to get into your about a book that I'd never read before and it was torture it was absolute torture and that comes back to again I suppose a a maturity thing and not at that age being all that academically invested
0: how did you find it then when you went on to university and obviously you're then because you're reading it it's a different experience when you're reading because you're not just reading for pleasure you're reading analytically you're having to discuss and go through themes etc did you find that an, an enjoyable experience
1: I'm going to say at the time, I didn't necessarily find it all that enjoyable because you were meant to read, I think it was at one point, four books a week for different classes. I mean, I don't know on what planet people can read four books a week from cover to cover. And there was lots of subjects that I just, you know, had not a lot of interest in epic poems, the Fairy Queen. And now I think, what an idiot. Like, I would like to go back and like sit in some of those lectures for fun, for something to do. And what a waste. But then as I did get older and I was in that sort of final year, I found it really enjoyable. And I think I feel like I'm giving quite a bad account of myself. But in, in my final year, I did turn things around and became really quite invested in it and enjoyed the different way of looking at books. But I think going to uni and doing English literature, I wasn't prepared to look at everything critically, which is what the degree is.
0: But also, do you not you know, think as well... Obviously, a lot of times you're going straight from school to university that, as you say, by the time you get into fourth year, that's you know a different level of maturity as well in terms of your age, how you're looking at things. That if you if you maybe went to university a bit later, you might have approached it in a different way as well. Because obviously, when you start uni, there's a whole social side of things you want to enjoy. And as you say, reading four books a week is a daunting prospect if you weren't doing anything else. But obviously, there's a whole social side to the university that you would have been enjoying as well
1: yeah, the, the social side and, you know, you're working to be able to afford to go there in, in the first place. And there was mature students in my classes and I remember thinking how good they were, but they're probably that good because they've paid to be there and, you know, they have a, gen- a vested interest in what's happening, whereas people like me, you went because it was something you were good at and you weren't entirely sure what you were going to do with it.
0: I mean, in terms of your, your reading, you mentioned already, you kind of... You wouldn't persevere with a book if you're not enjoying it. You'll just go in from the the pile of, obviously, the more books that you're ever going to read in your life, you've probably got in your house, but there's always something that you can go to and then always come back to it.
1: If I'm not enjoying a book, it doesn't register, like it doesn't stay in my brain. So then the next time I pick it up, I could have read 20 pages and I've kind of no idea what's happened in it. So if I try a couple of times with a book and that's what it's like, then yeah, I'll put it away for another day when you've got more brain space or you're, you're in a, a different mood to read it it's maybe just not the right book for the right time
0: because I always feel that you know life's too short and there's so many books that you could you could be reading rather than torturing yourself with something that even if you get to the end you might go I hated that
1: exactly exactly life's far too short yeah
0: And I'm always worried, you know, that way sometimes you go through peaks and troughs of your reading where where you seem to just be reading constantly. And I'm always worried if a book, I suddenly start to get bogged down in something and it's maybe, sometimes it's just to be a bit more difficult, sometimes you're not enjoying it. I'm always worried that that will then not put me off reading, but then it'll, it'll take me a while to get back into the rhythm of it. So that's why I quite quickly just put something down and pick something else up.
1: Yeah, I think, ironically for me, going to do my English literature degree, it did take a lot of enjoyment out of reading for me. And it took me a little while to get back into it. And I've spoken to other people who have done it as a degree who would say something similar because it it changes from something you enjoy to work. Reading for people is not always meant to be work. And I think I wasn't fully expecting the nature of the degree to be what it it was. And so after uni, I read a lot of like magazine articles or, you know, features, but wouldn't necessarily pick up a book right away because I'd had, well, had bought that many books for my degree and never read them so (laughs) yeah it it did change the way i looked at reading for a while changed my habits
0: yeah i wonder if any of your lecturers will be listening to this going i knew it i knew it
1: (laughs) sorry sorry for uh, past behaviors
0: but listen as you said already you redeemed yourself in your fourth year
1: thanks thank you very much
0: (laughs) we are on to the the fifth and final question and that's either the last book you've read or the book you've currently reading. so you've given me one for each of those questions so the the last book you read was shoggy bane by douglas stewart so if we want to talk about that one first, obviously that won the Booker Prize last year, just the second Scottish author to win it. He was on, he's been on the podcast as well. What did you what was your experience of Shuggy Being?
1: Oh, I just absolutely loved it and can see why it's become so so popular and why he won the prize. It's a sad story, the story of Shuggy. But the thing is, in Douglas Stewart's writing again with another Scottish story, you recognise the characters and it some of them speak, you know, I can hear my gran or just one of Agnes's mates when she lives in, down the pit and she's always just around and trying to get her to, to have a wee drink and you know passing on the gossip between everyone and you just you know these characters from some point in your life and I think that's what Douglas Stewart's done so well is to bring them to life in a very authentic way but it's a sad story.
0: Just as, we, as we're speaking it's only just come out in paperback so it's it kind of feels to me as if it's been around for ages. But it's actually only just, the, it's been a phenomenon in the past year. I mean, I think it took him about 10 years to write it because it was just something he was doing himself and slowly but surely. And he, he got loads of rejections before it was first published in America and then came over here. But I agree with you. I mean, it's I mean, there's a real love story to it as well. But I think it's just that authentic Glasgow voice, as you say, that you, that you hear and when you're reading it of, of that early 80s period. But just characters that you know, everybody knows somebody who's in that book.
1: Yeah, and Douglas and Graham, they both quite—they have that in common where the voices are authentic and some of the subject matter is the same. You know, They both write about addiction, but in very different ways. But the consequences are the same for both of them. People are lost to addiction in, in both of those books. And yeah, I think that authentic voice is so important. And like you say, yeah, there's lots of characters in it that you can just immediately recognise as, as a familiar voice. And so, yeah, it's just that, that real experience brought to life.
0: I also think Douglas Stewart, is just the loveliest guy. And it, it strikes me that he's obviously embraced the whole, the, the kind of success of the book. And he, it just seems to me, if MD asks to interview him, he just seems to be the most obliging person that he just he's happy to talk. And I think it's such a, a, a refreshing thing that he seems to have taken it all in his stride and just is happy to give people the time who want to talk to him. And I just think that's you know in this day and age that's just a brilliant thing
1: yeah I actually listened to his episode of your podcast and it absolutely came across like that just genuine it came across really genuine and like you said like when you listen to Graham in an interview I think that will encourage a lot of people to go out and pick up his book because of the way he comes across and talks about it.
0: And the the book that you said you're currently reading is a book called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize back in 2015. And how are you getting on with that?
1: Well, I'm only about 200 pages in. I think it's got about 700-odd pages. It's a really big, it's like a big doorstop of a book. I think I'd put a picture or something up of myself out on Instagram or whatever reading this book. And so many people messaged me saying, oh, you're going to need counselling after you are finished that or... Make sure you have a, a bottle of wine at hand when you're reading that book. And so many people saying they wish they'd read it again. It's one of the best things they've ever read. So I'm not quite sure where it's going yet, but I'm a bit scared for it to end. And it's good so far.
0: And then do you, do you always know what you're going to read next? or When you get to the end of this book, do you then just see what you know what catches your eye on the shelves or what mood you're in to, to the type of book you're going to read?
1: I think it's what mood I'm in. Although, like we've, we've established, they're usually pretty heavy books. So, at the minute, my friend Emma from work, she got me. Well, she left a book on my desk a, a few weeks ago called Mayflies. It's by Andrew O'Hagan. Yeah. So that is next. That is next in my pile. But I've I finished this book and it's a bit heavy, and I need something that's a bit a bit lighter. Then I'll just visit the pile and I'll see what what suits the mood.
0: Can I give you a book recommendation, actually? Which Oh, please do.
1: Please do. Which,
0: it was the book, the first book that I read in 2021, and it was recommended to me, a friend of mine, Margot McQuaig, who has, uh-huh. has been on the podcast a couple of times. She's also just got a new book out, which is really good, called Almost Then. But the, the book I would recommend, it's called A Ghost in the Throw It. It's by an Irish writer called Darren Nagrifa. I, I will message you how you spell her name. Yeah,
1: please um, do.
0: But it's, a, it's this strange, slight memoir and, and her own experiences of being a woman and motherhood. But then also she's researching this classic Irish love poem written in the 17th century by this woman who's kind of lament for her husband who dies and ties it all in. Margot had been going on about this book and I thought, I need to read it. And I read it in about a day at the start of the year. I think because there was no parties at, at Hogmanay, I wasn't hung over on New Year's Day. It's utterly breathtaking. So I'll, I'll email you the the woman's, how you spell her name and stuff like that. But it is a, it's an amazing book.
1: Thanks very much. I think I'll get on to that. Sounds great.
0: Yeah, and you can add it to I'll And I'll it
1: add it to the pile. So and you can add one to my pile and I'll add one to your pile.
0: Sadly, we are just about come to the end of the podcast, but at least I know that from today that I'm hoping that the seeds of you're going to write a book has been planted. You've planted it. And then obviously I'm just going to be checking the, the listings over the next few months for your book club starting on STV.
1: Thank you very much. And I'll be I'll be flavour of the month next week. and going in to give them brand new content.
0: Excellent. Um, But I've really enjoyed chatting to you, Sarah, about books and uh, some of your your book recommendations.
1: Thanks very much, Paul. It's been great. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself.
0: Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.